Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics, and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. The following podcasts do not follow our usual format. They contain excerpts from interviews that didn't fall under the umbrella of the typical podcast, but we still wanted to share the information with you. Please enjoy. This segment is on the Chief Pharmacist. Steve Morris discusses the goals and roles of Chief Pharmacists and how they vary by state to state with different titles. It actually differs on each jurisdiction. I can give you some broad thoughts. So yeah, so the role of Chief Pharmacist probably varies from one jurisdiction to another. Uh, in their essence, most of those roles have regulatory functions in terms of the legislation that exists within that particular state. And then variably, some of the roles also then pick up broader um, accountabilities around quality use of medicines and improving medicines utilisation. And some broader in terms of also working through a process of how you might um, improve engagement, utilisation of community pharmacy. So they're quite varied in terms of um, the roles they have within each jurisdiction. And they're often called by different titles. So there are some jurisdictions that have a chief pharmacist equivalent role, but they're not called chief pharmacist, for example. So it's not unified across every jurisdiction. The issues are probably the same in each jurisdiction. They're just dealt with differently. This section is on community pharmacy research. Rossiuki looks at conditions with high prevalence that are poorly managed with high hospitalizations. He asks, should we be implementing what we know or conducting a new trial? And is your trial adding anything new? What I tend to do is I tend to look at uh, it from a public health point of view. What are the, what are the conditions that are highly prevalent and poorly managed? And so that's why, you know, we picked up on hypertension, cardiovascular disease, uh, you know, all of those things. Um, our new one is going to be in osteoarthritis. Again, very poorly managed. Uh, we've got one coming in COPD. Again, very poorly managed. Uh, um, and, you know, big driver of hospitalizations as well. Uh, and so... Um, you know, those ones are, are ongoing. But I think the thing is that we have reasonable evidence in a lot of different areas. It's just we don't act on them. And so what we need to start doing is, um, is not so much a trial to show that a pharmacist can do this, because we kind of know that already. Uh, what we need to do is implement what we know. And because if you don't implement it, uh, why bother doing the trial in the first place? Um, you know, I would make the argument that it would be unethical for you to do another randomized trial of pharmacist management of hypertension. Because aren't 50 of them enough <laughs> that all show exactly the same? You're not going to do something that is going to disrupt uh, the, the findings from uh, 50 other studies. I, I'm sorry, you're just not going to. Um, and so I would say, if you had the money to do something, uh, in a lot of these cases, I don't think we should be doing trials. I think actually what we should be doing is implementing what we know. So the greater good will come from implementing what we already know. Um, 
So, you know, that whole branch is called implementation science. And I think we need to be better at that. So um, what I've been going around and saying is don't do any more trials. Uh, you know, there's specific areas that, sure, we don't have any evidence for. But um, I think what we need to, to, to go at in a, in a big way is implementation. Because if we don't implement it, um, that opportunity is going to, that ship will have sailed. Uh, we, we, we will miss uh, that. And, you know, um, it, it's so unfortunate that we can show within a trial, uh, you know, massive reductions in blood pressure, but then it's never implemented. And so is it even worth doing? You could, you could, I sometimes ask myself, was it even worth doing the original trial if no one's going to implement it? And, and, you know, it's not a matter of just saying, well, you know, I'll go talk to a bunch of pharmacy groups and say, you know, isn't this great? That doesn't change practice. It doesn't change physicians' practice either. So why would it change pharmacists' practice? Uh, uh, how do we get people thinking in that way that I'm going to systematically um, look at my patients uh, for the opportunity to better manage their blood pressure? or their COPD, look at their inhaler usage, uh, you know, things like that. Um, what's it going to take for me to start thinking of it that way as opposed to a transactional, uh, well, they just need a refill of this. Uh, uh, what's that going to take? What do I need to do? Because uh, ph these pharmacists have shown that they can do it. Uh, and then the trial is over and they don't do it anymore. Uh, and then what about spreading it uh, to, to more pharmacists uh, who weren't in the original trial? How do we, how do, we do that? That's an entirely different science. Uh, we need to develop tools. We need to uh, develop systems that will help pharmacists to document that. Um, uh, this is, I think this is that next frontier that we need to, we need to be able to, to do. And, and I think our profession is, frankly, I think our profession is going to depend on it. If we can't get that right, uh, you know, forget it. Um, so, uh, I think there's some urgency there. We need to, we need to figure that out. We've tried a few things that haven't worked. <laughs> um, and so it just tells me that we're um, we're not we're not doing the right thing, uh, and so this is where I think we're going to need to get inside people's heads. We're going to have to think much much more differently uh, about this, and uh, you know we're pursuing some of them now. I don't know if they're going to be the right things, but we'll have to test them. And so, how do you spread this across an entire jurisdiction? Uh, you know, that's when we will have met our full potential. And uh, that's a big question. Jared McMoore, Amanda Cross, and Amy Page share their insights. Amy discusses her experience prior to getting a PhD and getting started. She discusses the process and having the right topic and the right mentor, as well as the importance of publishing a paper and funding. She also discusses transferable skills and balance of work. For me personally, I was probably one of the people who had very limited research exposure or experience at all before I started my PhD. So I'd worked clinically for three years previously and I was working as a clinical educator. 
Um, so because I was working as a clinical educator at the university, I was toying with the idea that, well, being in a university, obviously the topic of PhDs come up. So I was toying with that idea and the lady who then became my supervisor overheard me saying that I was toying with the idea and said, well, I know this deprescribing trial that could do with a PhD student if you're interested. And I was like, oh my God, are you serious? That would be like my ideal topic. Um, so my that's how I got into doing my PhD. But when I started it, I was, I really didn't know what it entailed. I didn't really know anybody else who'd anybody else who was going through one at the time or anything we ended up making this great little network I found for three other people who were doing a PhD on deprescribing around Australia as well so Kristen Anderson at UQ and with Ian Scott and Chris Freeman and Lisa Kalagian at University of Sydney with um, Sarah Helmer and Tim Chen and Justin Turner who was at University of South Australia and then Monash with Simon Bell and the three of us, the four of us, Justin and Kristen and Lisa and I used to meet up on Skype once a month to do what was supposed to be a journal club, just sharing an article that we'd read. Um, but it was also our little, or for me at least, it was our little support network and that time to actually connect with other PhD students doing a similar topic. So that was quite invaluable to me. Um but as far as getting started, it took quite a while to get started. Um, it took a while to work out what I was supposed to be doing, what my expectations of myself were, what other people's expectations of me were. Um, as far as the process goes, it usually once you're interested in getting a PhD, the first step is actually to find... PhD supervisors that you think you can work well with. Um, your PhD supervisors are usually people that you have a really close relationship with over a long time, like three or four years, you're working really closely with them. So it's really important you've got a really good working relationship with you, that they're people that can motivate you, that can support you, that can give you a push when you're feeling uh, a bit lethargic as well. Um, and also that their working styles and supervision styles are similar to yours um, and that they're fairly responsive to what you're doing. It's probably almost as important as that you've got a topic that you're passionate about because you're going to be going into this topic in quite some depth over three to four years and often continuing on looking at that same topic afterwards because if you're interested in it, there's often more work to be done in it that you want to continue. Um, the process after that for enrolling is depends on if you're full-time or part-time but just as a generality um, once you've enrolled it's usually about a three-year process so you can get an extension but you aim to get it done in three years and the first six months or so you're actually planning the PhD so you're not actually doing much actual work you're planning what you're going to be doing you're writing a research proposal that sets out what your what studies you're going to do and what the story of your PhD is going to be um, and doing a lot of reading so there's an awful lot of reading and getting your head around the literature so 
there might be days or weeks where you don't do much other than read papers and you don't have any output that you can actually point point out and show this is what I've done or this is what I've achieved, but you've read more, you've accumulated more papers that you need to read and you're always finding more things, more little rabbit warrens to go down with the reading. Um, once you've got that plan in place, then you usually um, start with getting the research underway um, a PhD in pharmacy often uh, is four or five published papers that are bookended by an introduction and a discussion chapters at the beginning and end. So those four or five published papers are usually in peer-reviewed journals um, that describe the research that you've done for that study. So often that'll be a systematic review and three other three other studies that you've then written up and published along the way of doing your PhD. So um, how do you choose an institution? You usually actually choose the supervisors and the topic more than you choose the institution. So it's where your supervisors are based or where your primary supervisor is based is usually the institution that you go to. Um, sometimes that can be across two institutions if you've got a primary supervisor at both of those locations, but typically it's a lot smoother to just do it at one institution. So once you're in, once you're enrolled with an institution, I assume you get access to their facility. So, like, let's say it was PubMed, you suddenly have access to PubMed, assuming that they've. Um, so. Once you've enrolled as a PhD student, so you consider the student for the first year until you've undergone confirmation when you're then um, fully enrolled. Um, but once you've started your PhD, you've got full access to all of the university's facilities, all of their databases, their libraries, um, which come with any the full text version of any articles that they've got. If that li university's library doesn't have that full text, then they'll get it for you from a different university or they'll pay to order it in for you. Um, you've also got access to any of their training um, and other resources. So there's a lot of training programs that they put on for database searches. Yeah, you've got access to any of the training courses that they put on for their staff and students too. What about um, developing the actual skills to undertake the research? So if you've never done research methods before, is that, yeah, how do you get access to that as well? So most people will have had a little bit of exposure to research before. So a lot of people will have either done um, an honours year research or they might have done a research project as part of a master's course or they will be able to show from their workplace that they have done the equivalent of honours. So for me personally, I had to show that I had honours equivalency. So I had to show that the projects and work that I'd been doing in my clinical practice and educator role were equivalent to what I would have, the skills I would have got from doing honours. Um, that's a fairly low bar actually for entry. Um, generally, most people to be competitive for a scholarship these days will have published at least one paper. 
Yeah, um, I think that's the difference that you can be accepted into a PhD, but in order to get funding, you generally have to prove a higher mm-hmm. level of sort of research output, which when you're going in from a non-research setting and a non-honours or master setting, it's hard to do. Um, so when I started my PhD, I didn't have a scholarship. I was fortunate enough that my supervisors had a little bit of money to start with. Um, and so as Amy was saying, how most people spend like the first sort of six months planning, I actually started straight away with a data set um, in order to try and get a paper to then apply for funding. Um, so I actually managed to get two papers out in that first 12 months and then was competitive for a scholarship the following year. And are the scholarships more to, so that you your cost of living are taken care of so you can focus on the work you're doing? Or is it to, like, let's say you want to develop a project that means that you would need access to specific facilities, let's say. Let's say there's some thing that you need and it's going to cost $20,000 to run the project you want to do for the research. Where would the, funding for something like that come from? The scholarship covers your the PhD student's time only. Um, so it's only to support that PhD student. Um, for funding to do the project, it's either the student's time, but if further funding is needed, it's needed through grant. So you put in uh, at grant applications for whatever thing you need to do and whoever's offering the grant, if they believe that it's with their philosophy or what they want to achieve and they go great. That's correct. So you write grants. Um, sometimes you are lucky enough to step into an established project that's already got grant funding. Other times you need to cert, um, try writing grant applications and putting it in to get competitive grant funding as I well. I wouldn't say that writing grant applications is that common for a PhD student though. Um, I would say the majority would probably step into where there is already funding. Um, so a supervisor might get a large grant and then look for a PhD student to step into that. Um, but, yeah, oh, I think you did as well. I personally, I did write a grant to help run a trial as part of my PhD, but I don't know of many others in my department who did that. So I wouldn't say that is not the most common option that happens um grant writing is generally something that would happen later on or you could be on part of the grant but you probably wouldn't write a grant that you were like solely for your phd it might be part of what your supervisors are doing or something like that it's interesting it's one of the areas i do have experience in you write a grant application not saying it doesn't happen it's just saying that yeah it's it's probably not coming from the other that common yeah (laughs) yeah Interesting. So if, you yeah. think, if you've got experience writing grant applications, that's actually very analogous to the same sort of skills that you need for doing research and starting yeah. it. <laughs> and in terms of the scholarship, the scholarship is um, so when you are enrolled at a university as a full-time a PhD student, you're not allowed to work too much on the side yeah so, so, if you could, the living so that's, i guess that's another issue so the, what i want to try and pitch this out of is, is people who are sort of a couple of years in their, into their careers and thinking well have i missed the boat on research or could i get into it and no, so, so on that i actually think that a lot of the people who do really well in phds you've sort of got two different you've got the ones who've gone straight in from university to a phd which is fantastic and they've often got really 
great skills to get started, research skills to get started. So they sort of hit the ground running. Um, but then you've got others that have gone out and practiced for a few years and then they've come back and those skills that they've learned in the workplace are invaluable in the PhD. So it comes back to that idea of practice informing research and research informing practice. So I think the idea of that you need to just go straight into it is not correct. Like I don't think you missed the boat because those skills that you've learned in the workplace, that how to talk to people, how to make things happen, seeing what issues you actually care about and are passionate about is a great foundation for the research as well. And I don't think you can underestimate the, those, the value of those skills yeah, those in doing life the PhD. Skills, the life skills and the management skills are all very transferable to a PhD. And mm. yeah, I think sometimes the people that do go straight from internship or undergraduate to those higher degree research often don't have those life skills and may struggle at times in terms of the project management side of things. Yeah, there's a lot of project management that goes with a PhD, probably more project management. Than project management, people management, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you were doing yours and yours, does that mean that you just did like little locum work on the side? So that was your full-time yeah, so I was lucky. I had a very generous PhD scholarship, um, but the PhD scholarship meant that I could only work eight hours between in business hours um, each week. So considering I was the sole income earner for a family of six, that was not, even though I had a very generous scholarship, it was not quite generous enough. So I took advantage of the fact I could work as many hours as I wanted outside of business hours. So I did um, tutoring for Monash, which was all online, so it could be done at any time of day. Um, I did my one clinical day a week at the GP practice. Um, but then, um, yeah, any RA work, research assistant work that I did, because I did quite a bit of that as well, that was all done outside of business hours too. I think um, Amy had slightly different scholarship to most. Um, the standard one is an Australian Government Research Training Program Scholarship, which dictates that you're not allowed to do more than 15 hours of external work and no more than eight hours within your Monday to Friday, nine to five. Um, so I worked Sundays, every Sunday throughout my PhD. Um, and then, so that was sort of my out of hours work. Um, and then, yeah, I did some teaching tutoring, lecturing, marking and home medicine reviews as that sort of extra eight hours within normal hours. So I think the requirements actually change university to university because I had a university postgraduate award, which is there was an Australian government award, um, APA scholarship or university postgraduate award, you know, um, UPA, which were offered through the main funding scheme through the universities. Um, and that was the... Um, criteria that was attached to the West University of Western Australia scholarships. Um, so I'm not sure what it's like at other universities, but yeah. And how realistic is it for somebody to do a PhD if they don't have a scholarship? So let's say they're employed full part time enough to cover their living costs. Could you do us a PhD for somebody who doesn't go for a scholarship at all, or is it? Yeah, so my best friend's just about to submit her PhD. She's 
been working on it for seven years part-time while she's been working full-time. Um, so she tends to have worked on it in bursts. Um, My husband did a PhD without a scholarship as well. Um, so most of it was full-time. There was a little bit that was part-time. I got him a job at night at the pharmacy <laughs> as a pharmacy assistant. But, um, yeah, it's definitely possible um, provided that that works within your life's and your family dynamics. It's It makes it – I think it works better even though Amanda's husband and Amanda obviously <laughs> managed to do it um, with full-time. It often works better for people who are working full-time because they're not actually eligible for a scholarship. Um, so I think it works better for people who are working full-time and want to do a PhD while they maintain that job. Um, sometimes that's because they need the job financially and other times, um, like my best friend, it's where they get their motivation and incentive from to do the research. So for her, she felt if she dropped her work down, she would lose her motivation and incentive to actually do the research in the first place. This segment is on innovation. Elise Apolloni shares on what innovation equates to and being proactive. I think innovation is really important. I think it equates to growth. And I think our industry needs to innovate to stay ahead of the game. For a long time, we've been playing catch-ups and I think we're at a point where we really need to start to get ahead of the ball and start really proactively finding opportunities instead of just waiting them, waiting for them to kind of fall on us <laughs> at the very last minute. And I'm seeing a lot of that around. So I think innovation is out there and we are getting used to it and we are adapting, which is really exciting. Mark Norton discusses our bread and butter. Um... Well, I think one of the things, look, one of the problems that we see, and it, 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 it's, it is born out in the research, is medicated relate, medication-related problems. That's our fundamental bread and butter. That's what pharmacists are trained to do. And I think we, we have to be careful that we're not trying to develop all these other roles if our fundamental um, uh, training is not utilised and that is about identifying problems and resolving those problems. It, 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 it could be adverse drug reactions, it could be uh, drug interactions, um, it could be a whole bunch of other medication related problems but if we're not addressing those things then I think we're, um, we're doing a great disservice to the community who are, and the, the patients that are taking all those medicines if we're then trying to branch off and do all, all these other wonderful niche things. So we, I think we just have to be careful that we're, we're not trying to develop too many new roles um, and losing sight of our fundamental because if we then stop doing the fundamental stuff, patients aren't, aren't being looked after and then who's going to fulfil those roles? We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP podcast and send us a message.